0: So what can we learn from the first great community-wide controversy in the early church and the death of Stephen? That's the question for this morning as we continue our Outward Bound series. We have a scene that begins with a controversy in the church at the beginning of chapter 6, and then we have a sermon of Stephen's that we skip over, and then we have the incredibly violent and indeed horrendous but moving and powerful death of Stephen at the end of chapter 7 and into chapter 8. So if you'd be good enough to turn to your text, I want to look at this in some detail, each of them in their turn, and see what they have to teach us. Now what I want to suggest as you look at chapter 6 and we begin, is that the Bible is a ruthlessly realistic book. And one of the great things about how ruthlessly realistic is. You get a church, and you get a church that's growing, and you get a church that's multiplying, you get a church that's full of the Holy Spirit, it's got great signs and wonders, and they're fighting. Because that's what happens when you have a community. Ever had a fight in your family? How much time do you have? Right? Healthy families still have arguments. Growing families still have struggles. Growing churches have struggles. This is not going to be the only struggle that we see in the church, but it's the first one, and it's a big one. And we need to understand what's behind it very carefully. So stay with me and think for a second. I want to suggest to you that the key character when we get to chapter 3, all the way through chapter 7, so that's where we are now, is not the Holy Spirit with whom we started, but it's somebody else. So let's remind ourselves where we've been. It's the Holy Spirit that broods over the womb of the church in chapter 1, and then it descends on Pentecost, and you get the birth of the church. And whenever the Holy Spirit descends in great power, there is always counterattack. Talk to anybody in the military, and they will tell you, if you get near the target, you're going to get an attack. Go watch Top Gun. It's very good. But believe me, when they get close to the target, they get attacked. That's how you know that you're getting close. And Satan will have none of it. The key character in the book of Acts behind the scenes in chapter 3 through chapter 7 is Satan. That was him for special emphasis. Wow. I don't know what it is with me and microphones. Yeah. The key character is Satan. Now, he's got a threefold strategy. And Paul says in his letters in in the New Testament, it's a throwaway line, but it's important. He says, we are not ignorant of Satan and his designs. And one of the things about Satan is he's sophisticated, he's subtle, he's clever, but he has no imagination. His strategy actually doesn't change. So if you learn his strategy, it's actually the same strategy back then as it is now. Now stay with me very quickly and we'll review where we've been. So strategy number one is persecution. The church advances and the first thing that happens is they're basically told uh, physically, spiritually, and personally, this is going to cost you. You remember. You can do whatever you want, you guys. Just don't speak in the name of Jesus, say the authorities. Oh, great. They are opposed. It costs them. They get persecuted for their faith. This always happens to Christians. So the first Counterattack is persecution. It has always been thus. It will always be thus. It's more external. It's more physical. It's more direct. But it's his beginning strategy. The second is more internal. It's more subtle. And it's very important that we understand it. It's that weird story of Ananias and Sapphira. And sometimes they're accused of being greedy. But that's not actually their fundamental sin. It's important that you understand what Ananias and Sapphira is really about. Satan is behind them. In fact, Peter actually says in the text... You have not lied to the Holy Spirit, but to God. Right before a death of one of these two. It looks a little extreme, don't you think? It's like eliminating cancer. God just, boom, there they are. They do one thing and then they die. Why is God so concerned? Because they're trying to say that they were much more generous than in fact they were. They're trying to put a lie into the heart of the community. You mess up a company. You mess up a marriage. You build in a lie at its foundation. You do that, and it eventually will always unravel. The church is like a newborn baby. You've seen newborn babies. They're incredibly exciting. They're full of life. They're also unbelievably vulnerable. This is like the church as a newborn babe. And if you get a lie into the center of the community's witness at its heart... It destroys fellowship. It's always that way. Falsehood foils fellowship, as one of my professors in seminary used to say. So number one is persecution. Number two is moral compromise. And we could spend the rest of the morning just on those two, but that's not where we are. Where we are is today. Today is the most internal, the most subtle, and the most important. So I'm actually arguing that this controversy is actually a satanic temptation for the church. What's going on? Well, I appreciate you asking the question. We got these Hellenistic widows, and we have these Hebrew widows, and there's a controversy because some are neglected. So something is happening in the church at a communal level that's causing significant dissension, and the problem is brought to the leadership of the church. Now, here's what you need to understand about the subtlety of this. It is a real problem. It is up to the leadership to really solve it, And if it's not solved, it's going to destroy the unity of the church at its very outset. So it's a real serious situation. But here's the subtlety of what Satan is doing. It is a problem. It is up to the leadership of the church to solve the problem. It's just not their duty specifically, as God has called them, to solve it directly themselves. Do you see what's going on? God wants you to have your very most important priorities crowded out by your almost nearly as important priorities. This is about the confusion of priorities. Look at your text and look at verse four and think about it. Think about what they're saying. They're saying we're going to appoint new people to this office because we could solve the problem. We have the gifts to solve the problem. We have the ability to solve the problem. The problem needs to be solved. But if we do that, We will be dislodged from our fundamental priority as set-aside ministers who lead this community. And that is what? Prayer and the ministry of the Word. So they're going to be servants. They're going to be problem solvers. They're going to be uh, church leaders. All those things are good. But if Satan can use all those good things and just get them a little bit distracted from their number one priority, then he's off and running. Here comes your C.S. Lewis quote. You knew it was coming. The screw tape Letters. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without mileposts, without signs. You got the idea? It's subtle. It is a problem. It's up to them to solve it. It has to be solved. All that's true. But it's what Charles Hummel calls the tyranny of the urgent. He's got a little pamphlet. It's actually available online. I highly recommend it to you. He says what buries most people in terms of how they go about life and the wisdom that's called for in leading life is we give in to the apparently urgent and we don't stay with the actually important. And that's exactly what Satan is trying to get the leadership of the church to do. Sometimes when I teach vestries, I do a a sentence that goes like this: The single most important thing you can do for this parish is blank. And then I look at them and I pause and I say, "Okay, now I want you to fill it in." And you get these sort of strange looks. And I said, "No, I'm I'm dead serious. If you only, if you had to name your number as a vestry member, your number one priority for this parish, what would it be?" And sometimes if you're really lucky, you get good answers like tithing or attending worship. Um, you might even get uh, encouraging the minister or something like that. Not not what I'm after. Not, and not to say that any of those things aren't important for Vestry to do. The single most important thing the Vestry can do, here's the answer, your own growth in Jesus Christ your own prayer life, your own Bible reading, your own foundational growth in who you are in Christ. Because if you don't have that, you don't have anything. It's always with Jesus early in the morning, a great while before dawn, He went by Himself away and prayed. And it's always fullness and then overflow. And if you don't fill yourself up with the the living God, you've got no God to give people. And all satan 's trying to do is get them to do service he 's trying to get them to do Christian things and to no longer spend time with a christian God. acts of God, but not knowing God, doing godly things, busy churches that don 't love god there 's a letter if you 're taking notes on, you take it down in um, revelation it 's chapter three it 's the first letter. And the, the first letters to the church in Ephesus, and it's a very busy church, and it's a very vibrant church. And he says, but this I have against you. And that everything they're doing is right, except one thing, which is what? You've forgotten your first love. And it's an, it's an indictment from our Lord to this wonderful church that's doing all these godly things. They've somehow been dislodged from their priorities. Here's Stephen Covey in his very famous book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. You have to decide... Remember, we're talking secular guy now. Your highest priorities, what they are, and then you have to have the courage, pleasantly, smilingly, non-apologetically, to say no to other things. And the way you do that is by having a bigger yes burning inside you. The enemy of the best is often the good. Newsflash. Where do the idols in your life live and move and have their being? Do you know? You do realize that the human heart is an idol, idol factory, right? Where do they grow? Oh, they grow lots of places, but the most potent idols dwell in the really good things. That's that's, that's the really dangerous stuff. Your marriage, your children, your job, um, your your sense of what you think God should be doing in your life. And we could go on all morning. Lots and lots of really good things. But even things that are really, really good, if they dislodge you from the most important, they're dangerous. And this is what Satan's doing in this passage. Do you see where I'm after? We'll come back to this later. But I want you to be clear about what's going on. They don't fall for it. They stick to their guns. They keep their priorities. They delegate the responsibility. And they keep the main thing for themselves, the main thing by which the church is preserved. Thanks be to God. All right? All with me so far? All right, onward ho to the death of Stephen. Now it's really no fair because the whole sermon is an unbelievably long chapter in chapter seven, and we skip over the whole thing. But I do want you to notice as we begin the way this remarkable man is described. Look at verse eight full of grace and power. Verse ten. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And then, my personal favorite, and perhaps the most remarkable, verse 15. And gazing at him, this is a Christian, a normal person. They thought he looked like an angel. So radiant, so vibrant was his face. Can you imagine having somebody that spiritual, that intelligent, that sophisticated, and that godly in your midst, and having him preach a sermon and tell you your fathers were rebels and so are you? Can you imagine how mad that would make you? No wonder it says they ground their teeth. Did you catch how violent their response was? Now what I want you to notice, brothers and sisters, about this is three things. First, the fact of his death. Second, the nature of his death. And third, the circumstances of his death are all significant. First, just a word about the fact of his death. See, I told you the Bible's a realistic book. Oh my goodness, look at what happened. A Christian died. Newsflash. You're going to die. I'm not kidding. No one is getting out of here alive. <laughs> By the way, just as we go flying past this, I actually got in huge trouble in one parish I served, where I said to the congregation, I said, probably, I note my language, probably there are some people here this morning that in a year won't be here anymore. You'd have thought I'd killed them. They were all ready to murder me at the door. Like I told them something that couldn't possibly be true. By the way, for the record, at least two that I can think of were. And I had had nothing to do with it. But you, but you know what I, you understand what I'm saying the, the point is what, what, what the Bible tells you again and again with, with, in the Old Testament and New Testament is Christians die it treats death as a reality to be confronted and indeed the entire Christian tradition which we inherit has something called the Ars Moriendi which is basically the art of dying and part of being a Christian in the tradition is learning to die well did you know that? You actually have an obligation as a Christian to die well. There is such a thing as a less Christian and a more Christian death. By the way, just while I'm here, I'm preaching to meddling for just a second. Um, there's actually a rubric in the prayer book. I promise it's in there. You can ask Chris. It's on page 221 in your prayer books if you want to look it up later. But it, it's in the, it, it's in the liturgy for the adoption and the birth of a child. We actually have a responsibility. It says in the rubric as ministers to tell you to get a will. That's actually part of my responsibility, you do know that. So I'm saying to you, you heard it here first, it's going to be on the tape, right? What did Kendall say? Kendall said get a will. Why is that significant? You know this, right? Half of Americans don't have a will. It's not funny. We are in a death-denying society. Don't kid yourself. If you don't have a will, get one. By the way, one more thing, if I can give a little practical plug here, if you could also have something in addition to your will called a letter of instruction. Do you know what a letter of instruction is? It's the one thing that almost nobody ever does. <laughs> you have to have an executor when you die, which is the person that gets all the responsibility of dealing all the fluff. A letter of instruction is one pa- one pa- only one page. Nope, no cheating. Which actually says, here's where this, the social security box number is, here's where the safety deposit box is, here's where the burial plot is, here's the number of my lawyer on one, so the, all the really important stuff. And by the way, as a minister, you can actually have a, a, a page of instruction. Guess what? A funeral page of instruction. Ooh, who knew? In which case, Chris and I won't have to guess about your favorite hymns because you'll have told us. So we can actually do the funeral that you want instead of guessing. All that is part of the practical application of the fact that death is a reality that we have to confront. You all with me so far? So Stephen dies well, and he asks us the question whether we're prepared to die well. You can tell your friends, what was the sermon about? You can tell them, I won't hold it against you. Kendall said, we're not getting out of this alive. All right, now, moving on. Not just the fact of his death, but the nature of his death. Look at your text and think. I was a Christian a long time. I'd read this passage many, many, many times and I completely missed the significance of one of the most salient details. It was sitting there in the text. I just never saw it. Now look at verse 56 and think. They are enraged. They're getting ready. they're just about to stone him. And it says, verse 55, he's full of the Holy Spirit, and it's almost as if the curtain between this life and the next, right? The back of the wardrobe is kind of torn torn apart, and he starts to see into heaven. And look at your text, and look at what it says in verse 56. Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. Right? It has to be sitting, because that's what we say in the Creed. Right? You're gonna say that a little bit later. He's seated at the right hand of God. That's where he's, that's his job. It's called the session. That's where Jesus intercedes for us. Why didn't I notice as a young Christian that it doesn't say seated? Do you look at your text? What does it say? It says standing. Why didn't I notice that? Why is that in the text? Oh, I really appreciate you asking that question. So there I, there I am studying Acts and I'm doodling around in G. Campbell Morgan's wonderful sermon series on this wonderful letter. And there it is in black and white. He's not sitting, he's standing. And it's terribly, terribly significant. Two positions, he says, and I quote, suggest the two activities of Jesus' priesthood. He was a priest after the order of Aaron, whose business it was to make atonement. As such, he sits at the right hand of God because his work is accomplished. Listen, but he was also a priest after the order of Melchizedek. When Abraham was returning from conflict, Melchizedek brought forth bread and wine. Melchizedek was a priest who ministered to the, listen, failing strength of the warrior of faith. Even in Roman literature we have this. When the commander came back, having won a difficult battle covered in blood, the ruler of the kingdom would stand as an act of respect to receive his bloody general back because he'd fought. Because a minister of his body was in pain and suffering, he stood to minister to him in the very agony with which he once suffered himself and still suffered on behalf of his servant. No, not sitting, standing. It's a remarkably powerful portrayal of martyrdom. And it is a beautiful articulation of the fact that heaven and earth go together. C.S. Lewis says in one point, if you aim for heaven, you get earth thrown in. If you aim for earth, you get nothing. Well, there they both are, brothers and sisters, right together. Jesus standing and Stephen being welcomed. So it is an ignominious, and it is a violent and terrible death, but it is a glorious reception. And the one who receives him receives him standing and incredibly powerfully loving him in his agony. Are you all with me? So it's not simply the fact of his death, it's the nature of his death. Still not done. There's that one other thing. Did you catch it? It's in our reading. It's actually only half a verse. It's up there at the bottom of the screen. Do you see it there? It says verse 1a of chapter 8. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that guy. Yeah, all the people that went to stone him, they cast their garments at the feet of this guy who as soon as this passage is done, is described as a ravaging lion. The word that's used in the Greek in Acts 8 is of a lion who scavenges among carcasses of dead creatures. And that's the way he's tearing the the flesh of dead creatures. And that's the way Paul's described in terms of how he treats the early Christians. So here's the third thing. Not just the fact of his death, not just the nature of his death, but the circumstances of his death. And you got to stop and you've got to ask yourself the question. At this point in the early church, everybody in the community knows this happened. And what are they feeling? Devastation. Doubt. Discouragement. Darkness. And they're tempted to despair. The church looks weak They've lost one of their finest leaders. So remarkable was he that he had a face like an angel. And we've lost him. He's gone. This is terrible. Does God care? Is the church going to make it? And at that very point, right at that very point, he's actually sowing the seeds of that man at whose feet all those garments are being cast. And he goes from that moment and scavenges Christians. And then he goes to to the... to the road of, to, to Damascus, and he's in the middle of noonday prayer, and Jesus shows up. But what I want you to realize is this, brothers and sisters, you don't go from Saul to Paul unless you get the emblazoned, bloody face of Stephen and burned into Saul's consciousness saying, did you catch it? Lord, hold not this sin against their charge. That haunted him. There's a direct line from the death of Stephen to the remarkable and titanic conversion of Saul to Paul. Which means what? It means the church looks weak, but in fact, it's actually in the process of being even more greatly strengthened. God is not weak. The church is not weak. In fact, the church has never been stronger. Now, before I go any further, let me pack this point even further home with an illustration from our brothers and sisters in the worldwide church. The Church of Uganda is a martyr church. They lived this in the 1970s. And I had the privilege, because I was a seminary student, of having one of their bishops come and speak at our chapel because the World Council of Churches was held in Vancouver when I was a student there in the early 1980s. And what I brought here this morning is the story of the martyrdom of Yanani Lawum, Yanani Luom was one of the greatest Christians in the 20th century. He was the Archbishop of the Church of Nigeria. And he and festo Kavendri, who was a bishop and many other Christians in Nigeria, lived under a madman called Idi Amin, who specialized in terrorizing Christians and killing them at will, no matter what. This is the story of what happened in Kavendri's own words. Listen. In Uganda, during the eight years in the 1970s when Idi Amin and his men probably slaughtered, are you ready, half a million Ugandans, we live today and are gone tomorrow was the common phrase. By the way, you didn't have to tell any of the Christians in Uganda what I told you this morning. They all knew they were going to die. It was never a question for them. They lived it. We learned, he said, that living in danger when the Lord Jesus Christ is the focus of your life can be liberating. For one thing, you're no longer imprisoned by your own security. Boy, that'll preach. Because there isn't any. So the important security that people sought, the only place they could find it was being anchored in God. As we testified to the safe place we had in Jesus, many people who had been pagan or were on the fringes of the church flocked to the church asking this question, how do you prepare yourself for death? No wonder so many people were dying. And the church was actually exploding at this time, which made Edi, I mean, even matter. One of the things that happened, and he told this story in our hearing when I was in, in chapel, is Amin brought uh, six of his very most loved leaders into a stadium, forced Kavenjuri, the bishop, and other Christians to watch, and he ordered them executed, and the men were singing praises to God with tears falling down their face. And when Amin ordered his general to, to order them to fire the, the death shot, they, the men who were, get, were instructed to fire initially couldn't do it. They couldn't shoot because they were so overcome with the emotions of the men they were looking at who were singing praises to God, who were not afraid to die, who were praising the Lord and looking forward to going from this world to the next, if that's what it took, because they were going to be witnesses all the way to the end, which made, I mean, even matter. So then he arrested the Archbishop, he gave him a trumped up charge, and he killed him. February 16th, 1977. And the reason I love this story so much is because of the detail and the honesty. I just love this story. The church is so down. Festuk Avenger, is a bishop, he's down, and they're getting ready for the funeral. St. Paul's Cathedral, Kampala, February twentieth, 1977. 4,000 people walked unintimidated, but they were discouraged. And the most discouraged, he said, were the archbishops. But but he says in his remarkable chapter in his book, he said this, the real truth of what was going on can be best expressed in the words of the little lady who came to arrange flowers. It was the altar guild. It was the altar guild lady that saw the truth of what was going on. All these despondent people, all these despondent bishops, and they're all around, and she's got this big smile on her face, and they look at her, and she looks at them, and she says this, This is going to put us, listen, 20 times forward, isn't it? That's what she said. And that's exactly what happened. And that's what happened in that church. And that's what happened here. Which means that God is in charge always, no matter what, even when it looks darkest, even when archbishops are being murdered. Be careful at guessing what God is up to, brothers and sisters. He's still growing His church. He's still in charge. So just two things. The temptation to mess up our priorities, number one. And the death of Stephen, number two. Now I'm going to go from preaching to meddling, then we're done. You see, you thought you were off the hook, but no such luck. Now I want to go back to this part about priorities for just a second. And I want to to kind of lean into it. I've told you before Haddon Robinson's wonderful story about priorities. It's from a cooking book. Do you remember this? It's How to Cook a Rabbit. you remember this? And what's the first thing? First, catch the rabbit. Right? Remember that? You all remember that? But the thing is, it's so obvious. You can't cook rabbit stew without a rabbit. (laughs) The biggest issue in life is priorities. And part of being a Christian and seeking wisdom is to understand that this strategy of Satan back then is not just back then. It's right now. Here's... Ellsworth Callis in his wonderful book, The Ten Commandments from the Backside. Kind of an interesting book title. He says this, Most of us manage our priorities reasonably well on a daily level. Interestingly enough, we do pretty well at the extremes of life. For example, if our house catches fire, we probably would decide pretty quickly and incisively what to carry out and what to leave behind. But when it's life itself that's on issue, it's a more complicated call. Now listen to what he says. This is very wise. Renowned preacher and author George Buttrick came one day upon a farmer who had just retrieved a lost sheep. When Buttrick asked him, how did the sheep get lost? The farmer said, oh, uh, you have to know how sheep get lost, they just nibble themselves. They just go from one tuft of grass to another until they've lost their way. And that, he says, is what what happens in life. Unless you establish a structure of priorities and stick to it, you will find yourself nibbling away at each inconsequential tuft of decision until life is gone and much of it has slipped through your fingers. That is so, so wise. So here's the question, brothers and sisters. Are you really keeping your priorities? One of the ways you can think about it is this phrase that's in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, our God who sees in secret. That's the real way to to make this sort of light up. So the question is, on Thursday, if I were dropped into your life and I could see what the God in secret sees, would I see somebody who's actually keeping their God-given priorities? That's the question that this is asking. Is it really true that you're spending the most of your time praying and anxious about the things of God? Is it really true that when you think of your family, you're loving them for who they are and for what you can do for them and not anything else? Those are the kind of haunting questions that this asks you to ask. And when Moses, in the book of Exodus, when he says, Wow. Open your arms up. Don't Okay. Thank you. But when Moses gets ready to kill the Egyptian, do you remember what it says? It says... And seeing, looking to the right and looking to the left and seeing no one, he murdered. That's what the text actually says. Go back and look. Looking to the right and looking to the left and seeing no one, he murdered. So the question it asks you to ask is, who are we in secret? When we're building uh, cobwebs with a spider in the corner at 3 o'clock in the morning and thinking about where we really live and move and have our being. What goes through our mind? Who are we anyway? Are we our resume, which is a picture of a person we don't know? Or are we children of God? That's the question, brothers and sisters. Are you allowing anything in your life to dislodge you from the most important? Is the tyranny, the urgent, something that you need to worry about? That's the first question. The second question is this. Do you really understand how powerful this passage is to teach you about God's love? I can't go past it without at least talking about the cross for just a second. Because the death of Stephen begs us to ask this question. Don't you see it points back to the one whom he died for? Because there's a big difference. You know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. There's one big difference between the death of Stephen and the death of Jesus. And it's what? Stephen died sacrificially, powerfully, but he didn't want to die. It was involuntary. Jesus died for us voluntarily, horribly, ignominiously, violently. Violently. The message of the gospel is we are sinners so rebellious that Jesus had to die for us, and we're sinners so loved that Jesus wanted to die for us. That's the gospel in one sentence. And you've got to look at the death of Stephen and see that witness and the love and the sacrifice and realize it points back to what Paul calls the unsearchable witches of Christ. Do you know how much God loves you? Look at the death of Stephen and look through it to the ultimate death, the death that really matters, the death of our Lord. And then finally, brothers and sisters, do you hear the message of the, the circumstances of Stephen's death? I, I'm, I'm having trouble, Chris is casting me back and forth between the two campuses, so I'm having trouble figuring out who I said what to when. But this, I, I went back and made sure, but I want to say to you what I said to the other congregation two Sundays ago. About the, the times in which we live, okay? Now now look, this is not an easy time to be alive, okay? Somebody said this week online this, I am tired of living in unprecedented times. <laughs> and there isn't anybody here who can't relate to that, right? You're in a once-every-hundred-year pandemic, right? You're in a once-every-80-year war in Europe, and if you're paying attention, the economy is starting to wobble. Great! Yuck! Now, what I want you to recall is I want you to recall uh, the wonderful scene in Tolkien where Frodo is sitting there and he says to Gandalf, he says he's looking out at this horrendous field full of battle and he's saying, I don't like my time. I, I I don't like this time. I want to live in a different time, he says to Gandalf. And Gandalf says to Frodo, Frodo, we don't get to choose the times in which we live. All we get to choose is how we live in the midst of the times that we are given. So this is a time when it's very, very easy to fall into what the medieval theologians call the sin of despair. Do you know what the sin of despair is? It's not believing God is still God, no matter what the circumstances. If you lose faith that God is still God, it really goes south. It's a really—you lose faith in the goodness and the character of God. If Satan can get you there, he's really dislodged you. And we have all kinds of reasons to, to to fall into where our culture is, which is darkness, despair, doubt, division. How much time do you have? And what's the message of the death of Stephen? Hope. Hope. If the church is being strengthened when Yanani Lawum is being murdered by a madman called Idi Amin, if Stephen is getting ready to give birth to Saul to Paul, one of the greatest leaders of the church the church will ever have, then we cannot be people of despair. We must trust that God is still God. So I know it's difficult. It was difficult for them. It's difficult for us. But God is still God, brothers and sisters. Stephen had died But God was getting ready to give birth to Saul, to Paul, and to a much better future. It was true of them. It's true of us. So don't give in to despair. Don't be people of darkness. Be people of light and be people of hope. That's what our Lord was. That's what the early church calls us back to. So I give you the temptation of mixed-up priorities and the death of Stephen. Great wisdom, great challenge. As we are seated, let us pray. Lord, I would just like to thank You for the shoulders of Stephen and the shoulders of Yanani the on whose shoulders we stand. We are part of a martyr church, Lord, whose witness we can scarcely even begin to understand. But we thank You for their witness. We thank You for their courage, and we thank You for their perseverance. And we pray, Lord, that You might give us by Your Holy Spirit the ability as Christians in our time to faithfully follow you into the future you have called us to and to be people of hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.